We, uh, we got a lot to talk about this morning. Um, I really like when we introduce, um, I don't like the word series. Every time it comes out of my mouth, it's kind of uncomfortable because I'm not into this whole idea of like, let's have some sexy series to get you really excited about the Bible, right? Like, that's, that's helpful to some degree, but I'd rather just read scripture and talk about what God says. But... Sometimes we need ways to talk about themes throughout the entire Bible. So uh, I'm going to be using the word series, and it'll make my skin crawl, but I'll get over it. We're going to be talking about God for a while. Uh, Several weeks, actually, we're going to talk about God and what that means, Um, idolatry, the whole mess of it. Before we do that, I'd like to pray. I'd like to say, uh, get out a Bible, right? I kind of already alluded to this, but the most important thing we do when we gather here is read the Word of God to worship Him, because God's revealed Himself through Scripture, and if I get up here and say a lot of passionate things, it comes and goes. You'll forget me, you'll forget the things I say, as you should, but we want to remember the words of God. So if you don't have a Bible, there's a hard-backed black one in the seats in front of you. I encourage you to grab it. We'll also have Scripture on the screen. Uh, You can use an electronic device, should you dare, and can avoid the temptation, but we want to get into the Word of God. We're going to be in Exodus 32, um, and quite a few other places as well. Well, I guess John 17 would be a good place to land as well. Uh, I want to pray this morning. I'd invite you to be praying for Faye, Miss Faye in our church. She's in the hospital across the street right now, and she's not doing too well. Uh, and so visiting her third last night, and I just feel led to pray specifically for her and for her healing. Uh, we've got some other people in the church that have some health issues, um, um, fathers that aren't doing too well, things that, that really burden us. And so as we come together, we say that we're one body, right? As a church, we're one body in Christ. We say that what we do is we worship, connect, grow, and go. We worship God passionately. We connect with each other authentically. We grow to know God deeply, and we go declare the gospel boldly. An essential part of that is connecting with each other authentically because we're one body in Jesus. And so that means when Miss Faye is suffering, we're all suffering. That's First Chronicles or First Corinthians 12, right? One member suffers, all members suffer. And so when we come together and we pray, now maybe you're not a member, maybe you've never been here before, you're not used to this, understand that the Bible tells us that we're all connected. If you believe in Jesus, we're all connected. And so we want to join in the sufferings together and join in the celebration of the Lord together. We're going to pray right now because there are things that we want to approach the God about together that are heavy on our hearts. Father, We pray right now for Faye, that you would be healing her, that you'd be bringing peace and comfort to Dennis and Jeannie and and their whole family. We pray for uh, Lindo's father and their whole family and, and all the medical things going on there. We pray for your healing. All the things going on in this room as we we look out and we see each other and we know all the things that weigh heavy on us, marriage issues, addictions, uh, problems with kids, um, problems with relationships, work issues, lack of money, all these things that burden us, God, we want to give those to you. We want to open our hands and say, God, we trust you. You tell us that you're with us always, that you love us, that you're bringing peace and comfort and that you're making all things new. And so we claim that in the name of Jesus, and we pray that you would bring peace and comfort in these situations. Show us as your church, as your body, God, how to be bringing the peace and comfort of Christ in all these things. Open our eyes, open our ears, that we would see and hear you today as we look into your word. Help us to know you, God, and know Jesus. Amen. God is a big word, 
It's a big complicated word. Um, I had an experience in college once where I was driving and I was praying and I was at a stop sign and I was supposed to stop at the stop sign. And I was praying and I said the word God in my head and I like kind of instantly felt it ripple through the crevice of my brain like God, 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 God. And I rolled through the stop sign um, and then kind of pulled over and I was like, I had this like moment of revelation where like, wait, what does that even mean? And it really bothered me because it was like this colloquial phrase that, try to say that 10 times fast, colloquial, uh, that we say, we just say God. And the words in the Bible all over the place. But then God is, is a pretty relative term. Um, it's actually a very difficult term to define. Uh, we could start talking about what God means, but if we walk to different cultures all through history, then the word God means very different things. You can't just casually throw out this word God because it could mean something completely different. And even in our culture, I would submit that when I say, well, God just did this, or God provided this, or God did this, who are we talking about? I want us to be uncomfortable with this phrase because I think that so often we craft it in ways that might not quite be the God of Scripture. And we'll see that pretty quickly this morning. Uh, it's a challenging word, and I think that it's something we want to wrestle to find. Let's, um, yeah, let's talk for a minute. When you think about God, right, um, and whether it's the God of the Bible, just the things you think people would say about God, what are some phrases that come to mind? Go ahead, just throw out something. God... Jesus, wow, good one. Way to take the sermon. I'm just kidding. What else? Other words? I am. Ooh, man. I have some scholars in here. I am. What else? Almighty. Someone said Almighty, right? Someone says, why didn't you bring Leslie up to write for you? What else? Alpha and Omega. I'm going to write A slash O because I'm lazy. Oh my gosh. Ancient of Days. Good song too, huh? No? Just me? Okay. 90s kids. What? Anyone? Okay, no. <laughs> Yahweh, thank you. <laughs> She'd be like, no, that's too Hebrew, dude. Uh, let's see. We're going to do it this way, and then we're going to define... I'm going to underline this, and we're going to come back to this. Actually, no, let's do this right now. So in the Bible, uh, we have God, right? This word is used, I think, 2,000 times in Scripture. Let me double check. Yeah, around 2,000 times the word God's used, right? One of them uh, often is this word El, right? Have you heard of this? Shake your head yes. No? Okay, you're right now. Hebrew, El. Now, this can also refer to all sorts of other gods because you see lowercase g in the Bible, right? Yeah, we're, we are going to get involved together today, church. So you're going to shake your head. You're going to say yes. Just humor me. We're, it's going to be a great time. Trust me. You're like, this isn't middle school, David. Yeah, it is. L. So you've also heard that what is the longer version of L? El it, okay, close. Yeah, El Shaddai is there. That's one of them. Gosh, that's great. So the Hebrews had all these other words they'd add on to El to make sure they were talking about the God of Israel. So El Shaddai is one of them. El Adonai. Uh, but then we also have Elohim, right? Elohim, it's on the screen right there. Elohim. This is a, uh, a, a more deeper idea that more specifically refers to God of Israel, Elohim. But also, there were lesser Elohims, which is why the word God becomes difficult. Because there are times in the Bible where God is used to talk about agents of God that have power, they're celestial beings, divine counsel, things that were just like, oh, that's way too Eastern. I don't like those parts of the Bible. So uh, we're going to skip over them right now. But uh, Elohim, right? And then we have uh, L. This is idea of God over and over for God. But then God approaches Moses, and what does he say? His name is? 
I am. Right. Now, the, the phrase there in Hebrew, I am, means I will be. That's what the phrase means. And that's a weird thing for Moses to go and say, I will be sent me, right? And so God tells him to call himself Yahweh, which Yahweh means, uh, it's used over 6,500 times in the Old Testament, and it means he will be. So everything you can imagine, God will be. He is. And that concept will spin your mind because philosophically, it's very difficult to understand a God who is everything and who will be everything and who encapsulates everything. This is, this is God, right? And so this is where we get the word Yahweh. Interestingly enough, for all of you nerds out there who care about this, when they were translating scripture, uh, third and fourth century, they started deciding, hey, let's spell Yahweh like this and we'll replace it. Anytime you see this, the word's too sacred to just say, don't say Yahweh. So when you see this, it's a code for another word. What's that word? It's the word Lord in Hebrew. Anyone? There's a song. Praise Adonai. Anyone? Adonai. Okay, cool. Good job. Um, Adonai. Maybe that's how you spell that. Anyway, Adonai. And so what would happen is that's the word for Lord. And so when they came across Yahweh, they would call him Lord. And so a lot of times in the Bible, you see the word Lord. It's Adonai. Another layer to this, 6th and 7th century comes along, and they start adding the letters of Adonai to Yahweh, and you end up with Yehovah, right? You've heard of Yehovah? No, you haven't, because you're not Hebrew. You've heard of Jehovah, right? This is what happens. So uh, Westerners, they start translating the Bible later on, and they see this word, uh, Yehovah, and they don't understand that, okay, well, it was supposed to be Yahweh, but we translated Adonai, and then we combined it to Yehovah. So they translate it to Jehovah. And so now we have the word Jehovah. Did you know that? I didn't. I learned something new this week. Anyway, so we have all these words for God. Here's the problem, right? How do you define someone who is, who will be, who's always been? Here's what I want to invite you into the tension here. We have a limitation of language, and we're going to approach things in Scripture over and over and over. When we talk about God, when we talk about all these stories in the Old Testament sometimes, and they're going to make you uncomfortable. And you can find cheesy, trite, light answers for them. You can find itty-bitty pills to swallow to say, oh, well, God's just, so we'll just be okay with it. It's okay to be uncomfortable with the fact that God does things that make us uncomfortable in Scripture. It's okay that God does things that don't make sense. It's okay that we can't reckon with how Moses seemingly changes God's mind. We say, oh, no, he didn't really change his mind. He was testing him. We don't know that. It's okay that God is so big that none of these words can define him because he was, he is, and he always will be. And so, one of the, the humility we want to walk into when we start talking about God is that we have a limitation of language and knowledge. Right now, I want you to imagine nothing. Go. You can't. You can't imagine nothing because you start implementing something. It's philosophy again. You start implementing something into your brain to imagine nothing. Even you imagine darkness. Or maybe you imagine like that old Microsoft 97 screensaver where you're like flying through the stars flying at your face. Is that just me? You guys know what I'm talking about? That pixel's like, right? Uh, or it's a, a, a warp speed, Chewbacca, you know, what is it? Light, light speed, so it calls it. Star Wars, here we go, sorry. So you imagine maybe that, that isn't nothing. You're implementing something to think about nothing. So if I tell you to imagine everything, go. Everyone just broke, right? Does not compute. You can't imagine everything. And some of you are comfortable with that. Some of you are like, oh yeah, that's okay. God's bigger than me, yo. Right. But then as soon as something happens in your life that doesn't fit into your categories of God, we're so quick to throw him aside or redefine him how we want to define him. Because we want to have categories for God. And I want to submit that we have a limitation of knowledge and language. And that makes God 
worth worshiping. That makes God worth revering. When we talk about having reverence for God and we talk about being afraid of God, it's not that we're afraid that he's just going to see you. We're talking about, I can't, I don't have a category for you, dude. You have done everything. You will do everything. You are everything. I, I don't get it. I can't get there, right? Here's a, maybe this will help. Ooh, two papers today. Get pumped. Uh, maybe you guys have seen this analogy. So you've got this person right here. We're going to call him Matt because that was the last person that I saw in my head right now. Okay, so Matt's there, right? Where's he at? Okay, so Matt's here. And Matt is trying to understand the world, right? Say, hey, Matt. Ever, come on, guys. We're, we're going we're gonna to talk. We're going to do it. Okay, so Matt lives in a dimension here, right? It's two-dimensional. Do you understand that? So when Matt looks at square, Matt sees square, right? That's what he sees. Um, if Matt is looking for the circle inside the square, can Matt see the circle inside the square? No, right, because he's two-dimensional. Some of you are like, dude, I failed philosophy. Stop it. You're breaking my mind. You can do this. This isn't hard. Matt is trying to see the circle. He can't because all he sees is the square. Who sees the circle? Us, because we're three-dimensional. Now, if I go to poke Matt, what is Matt seeing? He's seeing a circle falling in it like, a, like the sun. Like, oh gosh, no, nah. Like it's just coming at him. He doesn't see the whole hand. He doesn't see the whole experience because he only sees two-dimensionally. This is our limitation, right? We need to walk into this. When we start talking about God, some of this needs to be uncomfortable because we can't see the circle. Even if we could see the circle, we can't see the full sphere. We can't see the full cube. We can't understand when God intercedes and does things, we only see the finger coming into focus. We don't see the full glory of who God is because one, it would kill us. And secondly, because he's so big. Can't imagine it. Does that help? I hope that helps. That helps me. Right. Another paper. All right. Blaise Pascal, he had a, well, let's do this. So if the Lord is so big, we have a hard time defining him. How, how do we know who God is? We've been trying to define God. We've struggled with it. We all wrestle with it. You, you know this. We have churches that disagree over silly things, all these different religions. How do we know who God is? God's revealed himself in some ways. What are some ways God's revealed himself? Universe. Yeah, creation, the universe. So the creation speaks to God's glory. It's Romans 1. What else? The scriptures, thank you. So we have the scriptures, we have the universe around us, the creation. What specifically in creation reveals God? Very specific. Something was made in God's image. Ah, humans! Humans were made in the image of God. And so we have humans look to it. Here's the interesting thing. We were supposed to reflect God and who he was. But we weren't satisfied being the creation. We wanted to be the creator ourselves. And so the whole tragedy of the Bible is that although we were like God, evil told us, the serpent in the garden said, no, 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 eat the fruit and you can be like God. And that's the temptation that ripples through your heart. That's the problem in your marriage. That's the problem with your kids. It's a problem with your entire life, is you want to be like God. You're not satisfied submitting to the creator. You're not satisfied looking at who God is, Yahweh, Adonai. You're not, you're not satisfied with that. You want to be God yourself. In fact, Blaise Pascal had a really great quote we're going to look at here. Blaise Pascal said, God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. 
We're going to hover around this for a while because I think this is so true in our lives. When we start defining God, I believe very quickly God starts becoming something that we've crafted, that we think. In fact, uh, those who argue against all religions, they'd say religion is a crutch, um, all of this is just fabricated. What they would argue is that your God is just a hyper-superhero version of humanity. We are limited, so God is limitless. We die, God lives forever. You struggle to love, so God is all love. We've just created something much bigger than us. But scripture tells us that God's a little more complex than that, right? He's not just a hyperhuman. Uh, he does a whole lot of things that don't even make sense compared to that. So evil tempted us. We want to be like God. And all through history, we've struggled to do that. So how do we seek the Lord and worship him? If, if it's going to be our natural struggle, if we only see part of this thing here of God and we want to worship him, but we craft God to be our own thing so we can't grasp this whole idea of Elohim and who God is, how do we, how do we worship him? How do we know who God is? We have to turn to Scripture, right? If you're following me, I'm trying to create a logical argument for why we're going to look into Scripture. So we have Scripture. Scripture reveals who God is. We're going to be wrestling with that, but we need to understand that we have a limitation in interpreting Scripture, right? We're going to do our best. We've got thousands of years of Christian history. We've got Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and we have the revelation of the Spirit. Thank God, right? But we still have a limitation because God is huge. And the reason that's so important to me is because you're going to come across someone that gives you trite little answers all the time about who God is, and then you're going to accidentally fabricate a God that you worship, and then you have no reason to be here, you have no reason to read scripture, because you've created God in your own image. And I submit that God is bigger than you. And as soon as you think you've figured him out, you need to read Jesus, because Jesus will drive you crazy. What is that guy doing? Trying to live like him, he's all over the place. It's like we understand his love and his passion, his disdain for religious leaders who are adulterating things, but then he just does these wild things, right? Spoiler alert, Jesus is, is our helper. That's how we understand who God is. So, we come to the Bible. What, uh, what are some of the... Man, we're, we're just going through paper today, man. What are some of... We'll use this one again. Save some trees here. What are uh, some of the most famous verses in Scripture? Give me one. You know, what, what do you think is one of the most famous verses in Scripture? John 3.16. That was my vote for what you would say. Who can stand up and quote it? Ready, go. Anyone? Nope. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What's another famous verse in scripture? We don't read the Bible, David. What is Isaiah 52.7? Yes, man, that's a good one. What else? Anyone else? Let's get one more. There's a really famous one in Genesis. It might be the first line in the Bible. In the beginning, uh, you guys are so afraid of me today. Wait, am I moving? To, is it flannel? Is that what it is today? Genesis 1 is another famous one. All right, we're going to move on from this. Y'all are terrified. That's okay. I'm too, I've got a lot of energy. What do you think is the most quoted scripture? In the Bible, the most quoted in the Bible. What do you think it is? Most famous verse in the Bible. What is it? You think that? Yeah. All throughout Scripture, what verse is most quoted? Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Spoiler alert, it's been on the screen the whole time. Gotcha. All right. No, it's okay. It's okay that we didn't know this. Exodus 34. This is an important thing to know, not just if you're doing some trivia night and you want to make everyone look silly who thinks they're religious. It's important to know because if the most quoted scripture in the Bible, it's quoted by prophets, priests, kings, it's quoted in John, like 
What is it? What does it say? We're going to read it right now. Get in your Bibles, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to tell the context of where this verse comes from and talk a little bit about a golden calf, and then we're going to get ready and worship and head home. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the Father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Most quoted verse in all of Scripture, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Did you know that? You learned two things today, right? Yeah, you learned where Jehovah came from, and you learned most quoted verses. I find it fascinating that prophets, priests, and king all through the Bible decide, you know what's the most important thing for us to quote? When God defines himself to Moses. Moses on the mountain says, God, show me your glory. God appears, and this is what God, from his word, says about himself, right? So, this is what we're going to be talking about. When we're trying to understand God for several weeks now, we're going to be talking about what it means for God to say that he's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keep, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions. And we're going to talk about that. Not just the first verse with the God goodies, right? We like all those things. Loving, forgiving, all that. We're going to talk about the second part too, about his justice, about his anger. We're going to talk about those things. But before we get there... We need to unpack how we even get here. How, why did God reveal himself to Moses? How are we doing those things? And lest you get so bored with me telling you the story of Israel up until this famous mountain that we're going to talk about, I've invited two experts to come on stage and tell us about it. So please give a warm welcome to Miss Carrie and Nikki Newton as they come up on stage. Look at you. You're so expert. Hold this. I'm going to give you this just in case you need it, in case you decide, I'm so introverted, I'm just going to ride on the board. I, lo I love you. You're doing a good job. All right. Tell us the story. We have Abraham. God calls Abraham a people of his own, and then Abraham has a son. His son's name is... Isaac. Isaac, right. And he has a son named... Jacob. Jacob, and Jacob's also called I don't know Israel. That. Yeah, okay. Israel, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nick, you said it. You've got to grab the mic. You're ready. So, it's also called Israel. So, did they, uh, did they all have a good time of peace? They grew. Things went well for quite a while, right? Sure. Sure. And then, Jacob died, and several years later, what happened to Israel? They got um, captured by Egypt. Egypt, right. They were slaves in Egypt. Yeah. Now, were things good in Egypt or bad? Bad. Bad. What was it like in Egypt? What happened there? They were slaves. They were slaves. <laughs> it's bad. Slaves. They had to, build had to work. They had to make whips. bricks, right? You got to yeah. do this, right? Because they had to make bricks with their feet. Yeah. At least yeah. that's what the Prince of yeah. Egypt told us. Right. Thank you. You did a great job. What happened after that? So, so tell me the story. They were slaves. They were slaves, and then they had no babies were allowed. No Hebrew babies were allowed to be born. What? They killed them, right? They killed them if they were under the age of two. Killed the Hebrew babies. One baby got through that we know of. What was his name, Nikki? Moses. Moses. Moses got through. What, who, what's Moses' deal? So he was floating in the river, and the, the Pharaoh's daughter found him, or mm -hmm. wife, wife, daughter, somebody, the princess, found him, and took him in, and, sh and he became her son. Yeah. Fast forward. He kills a guy, right, later on? Yeah, he killed He's a guy a Hebrew, who was secretly. beating a Hebrew slave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So then, kind of an accident. Yeah, it runs through the desert, spends 40 years in the desert, right? Gets married, has children. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. They have a celebration. Yep. Yeah, and then probably. That's what the movie said. He leaves. And, and then God someone... tells him he has to go back. How? God does what? He appears to him in what? Burning bush. Everyone do that. Can you make a fiery noise? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay, right. And this is where he says, I am, right? This is where Yahweh comes from. Okay, then Moses goes back and he talks to Egypt and they're like, okay, sure, you can have these people, these thousands of slaves. No. No, what happens? Plagues, 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 plagues. No, 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 Five no. Five plagues? Let my people go, let my people go. No, ten. Ten? Plagues, 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 yeah. plagues. Okay, ten. Ten plagues, right. So then they eventually let him go, right? Uh, after he kills his son. Yeah, Passover, right, yeah. After God Wait. kills. Yeah, so then, so then they all head out, and then God follows them in what? There's a pillar of... Clouds and smoke. Clouds and fire. smoke, and then a pillar of... Fire. Fire. You've got to talk loud. We can't hear you, love. Fire. fire. This is my wife, if you don't know. I'm not trying to just be mean. A little bit. So, fire. The pillar of fire. So then they all go. Was it, There's a big body of water, right? They've got to get across what? The Red Sea. The Red Sea, right. And what's that? What happened there? <laughs> so Moses put his staff out towards it, and it parted into dry land, yeah. and the people walked across it. And then, whenever the army tried to follow them it crashed and killed them all right yeah yeah that's both the noise for fire and rushing water apparently right okay so then everything's fine they're all happy no no do they whining they whine yeah dang it they're not happy and they wish they were back in slavery they wish they're back in slavery so what does god do does he provide some weird thing for them to eat manna manna right like what is this right golden grams from heaven and they collect that so God provides manna. What does he also provide? They're parched. Quail. Oh, water. And water, right? How many times does he provide water for them? Three. Three, right. Once when Moses hit the rock, rock. right. Another time there's a salt spring. He throws a stick in there or something like that. And other times provide water. What else, though? He also provides quail. Quail, right. So they're sick of eating these like little flaky golden gram things. And then just like thousands of quail right? They just swarm everywhere, quite everywhere. And God provides them to eat. Cool. And then what? So they had three months, they get to what place? Big famous mountain? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Right. And what happens there? Moses. God speaks directly to Moses. And then also to Aaron. Right. And then he speaks the 10 commandments over <laughs> over all the people. All, all, of all the people. Yes. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You're so sick of this. You're like, I'm so ready to be done. Well, so, you had Hebrew earlier. I'm nervous. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then also God appears in thunder, lightning. Anything else you want to say about Mount Sinai? Uh, while he was up there, um, the people that were waiting for uh-huh. him got impatient and they didn't... And they, Stop! We're going to talk about that story. Shh. No. I would like to file an employee. <laughs> okay. So, so, hold on. So they're at Mount Sinai. Hey, listen, if you enjoyed this moment, okay, on Wednesday nights, there's going to be a women's Bible study led by these women. You should come. They know everything about Egypt's history, and they're going to come tell you about it. It's going to be great. Thank you for writing words on the board. It was great. Thank you. Everyone give them a hand. Three months. Right? They meet Moses. Moses takes them out. They're at the foot of Sinai. It takes three months, right? It takes longer to make a baby, just so you know, um, in, in, in the belly. 
Okay, don't get confused. It takes longer for babies to grow. Nine months? Man, that was a bad analogy. It takes, uh, it takes a long time. It takes longer to build a house, right? Three months? It takes a while. And so they are with Moses for a very short time. They end up Mount Sinai. God specifically provides quail, manna. He does all these parts of the sea. They saw all these plagues. They saw God do things that you've never seen God do. And all these direct, huge spiritual experiences. And then Moses goes up on the mountain, right? And so we're going to start in verse 32. Moses goes up on the mountain. Now, they just heard God speak over them in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. They heard the voice of God. And then God says, come with me. I'm going to consecrate you as my people. It's like a wedding ceremony. We're going to be together as one. And they're like, whoa, you're big and scary. Go, we're going to send Moses. We'll just have Moses keep you in the mirror. He'll do the thing. He'll walk into the big dark cloud because we're really scared of that. And so then Moses is now interceding for the people uh, on behalf of God. Moses goes up there. Here we are, Exodus 32, verses 1 and 6. Moses has been up on the mountain 40 days. Here's what happens. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So again, Moses has only been with them for a short time. And so after 40 days, about six weeks, they're like, You know what? God's not speaking to Moses anymore. Homie went into that dark cloud. He's probably dead. So Aaron, you're our guy now. We need you to make us a God. Some of us read that and we think, what a ridiculous logical step. Why don't you just wait for Moses or walk into the cloud and go find him? Why is your next step to make a God? Well, see, there's a cultural misunderstanding that we have here a little bit. In general, idols in the Bible were typically not gods themselves, the physical thing that you saw. So the golden calf, this is not the God itself. And we'll read the language here. They use plural language because they saw this calf as both Yahweh and an intercessor for them. Moses is gone. Moses is the one that was connecting them to God. So we need something to connect us to God. You know what connect us to gods in Egypt? These things, calves, Cats, statues, alligator men, whatever. So we need one of these. And so their logical step is, we need to connect with God. We need to be in control of this relationship. We don't want to wait. We're going to control it somehow. And so we need to make something. And so what happens here is Aaron says to them, verse 2, Take off the rings of gold from your ears of your wives and of your sons and of your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned with a graving tool and made a cow. Yeah, golden calf. And they said, these, plural, are your gods, plural, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This calf is now their mediator. It is their meeting place for God. Some of us would say, that's not so bad, right? They're still talking to God. They're using just the golden cow. Here's the problem. God had literally just instructed them not to do this. Where, let's talk first about this gold earring. I think this is an important little keynote here. Where did they get these gold earrings and these gold rings? Anyone know? Egyptians, yeah! Gosh, some of you Sunday school people get me pumped. So, Egyptians gave them to them because God gave them favor with Egypt. Hey, you've been doing all of our work for us for all these years, and now you're leaving us because your God just wiped out all our sons and plagued us nine different times plus killed all our sons. Here's a whole bunch of gold. Imagine how ridiculous, again, God does things we don't fully understand. And so God gave, Egypt, or gave uh, Israel favor with Egypt, and they gave them a whole bunch of gold earrings. And while Moses is on the mountain, what are they supposed to use these gold earrings for? 
Tabernacle. Yeah, thank you. So they were supposed to build the tabernacle with these gold things. And what do they build instead? An idol. A golden calf, right? These are almost like a wedding ring. This idea of God giving them this symbol, these gold, this inheritance. Like, hey, this is your dowry. You're going to be my people. I'm calling you out of Egypt, and I'm going to consecrate you, and we're going to be together. And I said, no. We're going to melt down your wedding rings, and we're going to make our own thing because your marriage covenant stinks. We're going to do our own thing, God, right? And so this is the egregious frustrations happening. This happened in uh, Exodus 12 with the gold rings. But here's the bigger deal. God literally just told them not to do this. We're going to read some of the Ten Commandments here because I think it's so important. Exodus 20, verse 1 through 7. This is part of the Big Ten. So if you memorize these, you're pumped. You're ready for this. And God spoke these words to them, saying, again, God, big booming voice at the uh, Mount Sinai. He is saying these things. Everyone in Israel... So many people, thousands, thousands of people estimate, millions of people, they're hearing God say this. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me in my presence. You shall not make yourself any carved images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the father to the children of the third and fourth generations for those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands for those who love me and keep my commandments. So they make this golden calf, right? This is their mediator. And God literally just told them, no, don't, don't do that. Don't make, don't make anything before me. Who, uh, who was made in the image of God? We were made in the image of God. I think it's so fascinating that, that God's saying, you don't need to make an image. All these other people, they have these mediators between me and you. They have different gods out there, lesser gods, lesser Elohims. They have these mediators. You don't need that because you're created in my image. And I'm going to connect you through how I choose to connect you, not something that you do. So who did God use all through Scripture to connect with him? Prophets, priests, and kings, right? You have all these different people. You have the prophets. You have these different priests, people like Moses, uh, and, and all these kings that connect people to God. We were made in God's image. Colossians 1.15. It's talking about Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. That word image, he's the image. In Greek, it's icon, right? Kind of like the things on your desktop that you have too many of and you don't want to click on, right? He's the icon, that's Greek. That's the word that they use in positive light when they're talking about image. When they're talking about it in negative light, you know what the word is? Idol. It's the word idol. But Jesus, what does it say? He is the icon, the idol of the invisible God. Why? Because God always meant for us to have a liaison between him and us. He created us in his image, and Jesus is supposed to be who that is. And so later on, Paul catches it. He says, hold on, hold on. God told us in the Big Ten, don't make any graven images, right? Why? Because we were already made in the image of God, and we broke that. We destroyed that. We rebelled against God. We said, I'm going to make idols. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to follow what I want, God. And God says, no, no, no. I'm going to redeem that. I'm going to restore that in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the image, the icon, the meeting place, the redeemer, the one who makes us righteous before God. He's the image of the invisible God. And that's how Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
In Exodus 31, later on, verse 5, when Aaron saw this calf that he had built, uh, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made uh, a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up the next day and offered him burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This, this word play um, is a sexual word, just so you know. So you can imagine what they're talking about here. This is, uh, I won't use words that you don't want to define to your kids later. But uh, there's problems here that are happening, right? They eat and drink, they have festivals. These festivals that they're having, these are all things that are supposed to be happening to God. Right after the Ten Commandments, God speaks over them. He speaks to Moses, and Moses comes back down. And they're supposed to, at the Lord's feet, at his uh, Mount Sinai, they're supposed to make an altar and have peace offerings and sacrifices there. And again, now they're doing this to the golden calf. What happens next after all this is uh, in Exodus 32, 7 and 8, the Lord says to Moses, God's talking to Moses now. Forty days, God's been with Moses. And he says, go down to your people whom you brought out of Egypt. Your people who you brought out. They're not God's people now. Why? Because they've decided to go astray. They've decided to love something else. And God in the Big Ten said, hey, you love me, right? If you don't, then, then your iniquities are going to follow you. They're going to separate you, right? So he says, go down to your people who you called out of Egypt. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded you. So quickly, these people, from God's eyes, turned away from him. But then the very first verse we read in Exodus 32 said, said that they were getting sick of Moses delaying. I think there's an interesting perspective here. God doesn't feel like he's delaying. God feels like they're quickly turning from him. And I think so often in our lives, we have so many things that happen that we see God's delaying on, that we're impatient about, and so we've got to take things back in our own hands. We've got to do it. But, but setting aside that, obviously, scriptural message there, just think in general, logically. Are there things in life that seem like they last forever, but then later on when you look back on them, they were nothing? Who here has ever had a crying, or a crying infant that doesn't sleep at night? Yeah, yeah. Those of you who had those kids a very long time ago, would you, would you tell us that it's a very short time? Yeah, it happens pretty quickly. They cry, they don't sleep, and then all of a sudden they sleep through the night, right? What about potty training? Who here felt like potty training took forever? Yeah, right. Takes forever. Those of you whose kids are old and grown, do they still pee their pants? No! It's... I hope oh, not. Sorry. No offense. No offense. It happens like that. All the time, people look at our kids. We're walking through Walmart, they see little kids, and just some kind elderly person will say, man, it goes by quick. And those of you looking at me, are shaking your head, and like, yeah, man, spend time with your kids, because all of a sudden, they're gone. We see these things. They happen so quick. And at the time, they feel like they're taken forever. We can also apply that here to Scripture. How many things in your life do you feel like it's taking forever? This job is never getting better. My marriage is never getting better. My kids are never getting better. My life's there, my budget, my fight. Nothing's ever getting better. And so then we take it into our own hands. And God's up there saying, you're turning away so quickly. I told you I'm always with you. I told you I'll take care of you. I command you on what to do. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you're just ready to go out, do your own thing. So they create this idol. They start mixing the worship God told them to do with their own worship, right? So they're doing this own thing, their own feasts, their own festivals, which God told them to do. They're doing it in their own way. It leads to this sexual sin. Paul talks about that later on. I think it's 1 Corinthians 15. He kind of redefines what they're doing there. Turned aside so quickly. And then God gets really hurt. We're not going to read the story, but God gets really upset. There's punishment for this, right? People get plagued. People die. 3,000 people die. Uh, more than that, if uh, some scholars believe that when they drank the ashes of it, that would have killed them too. Tons of people. 
in response to this stupid idol thing of Aaron being a poor leader and people turning away so quickly. And we think the story's so far from us. But as we start talking about God and we tickled out at the beginning of the message, I think that we're constantly, so quickly, redefining God to who we want. Someone easy for us to manage. Making our own idols. Tim Keller defines idols like this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That's what an idol is. And oftentimes in the Christian world, an idol is kind of like this gold calf. Something that we make up to make us feel close to God that we worship actually isn't God at all. Those are the things that I want us to start wrestling with. Everyday life, so natural to do this because we don't want to just be the image bearers. We want to be like God ourselves. We want to be in control of these things. Individually, we do this with money and possessions. And we see here so quickly, these stuff that God gave them, their gold earrings, that was supposed to be kind of like their wedding dowry and their consecrated relationship, covenantal relationship with God. They so quickly turn that aside just like we do. We worship our money and our possessions. We need that physical thing. I need to have this much money in my bank account. I need to work this many hours. I need to obtain this stuff and things. And God would say, now open your hands. Trust that everything I have is given to you. We teach this a lot in our church, and in case you haven't heard in a while, nothing you own is yours because you will die and it won't go with you. It'll be future garage sale. It'll be a whole bunch of junk that your kids don't know what to do with. They'll sell it off or they'll keep it as treasured memories. And then a hundred years, all those things will fall apart. They won't be gone. None of you are ancient Rome. You don't have relics that are going to last forever. They're not important. It all comes and goes. This is why God says, I'm a generous God. Reflect me by giving things away. This is why we have tithes and offerings in the church. Not because we need to hoard your money and pump up our church bank account so we can build a new building and say, look at the empire memorial was built. Forget that. We collect money from people through tithes and offerings so that we can serve King Jesus for people who are struggling. When we have addicts who can't get into recovery. When we have people who say, my marriage is broken, can you help counsel me? Those things take money. When you give your tithes and offerings, it's so people get away from addiction. It's so people who are in the hospital who are struggling, we can provide some sort of relief for them. It's so our church can gather and have things and facilities so that we can do ministry, so that addicts have a place to go. So that the youth kids who don't have parents, they have a place to meet on Wednesday night to say, okay, now there's people who love and care about me. And so when we take those things down and we melt them into golden calves for our own personal life, messing everything up. God's given us these things. Open your hands. We also do this with our time and our energy. These people had their festivals and their sacrifices. Oh, we're going to do all these things. We treat the same way. I don't want to serve in the church. I could never help with children because I don't even like kids. I could never help with the youth. I don't want to serve in church. I don't, I don't want to count money. I can't even count my toes. Right? We say, I don't want to serve. There's no way I could serve. And then we give our time and energy to all these foolish things. How many Netflix or television shows have you watched in the last five years that you can't even remember? Unless you're in that niche of people. I told people this weekend, every year I watch every episode of King of the Hill. Every year. Judge me right now, all of you. I see your eyes. Every year. We're talking like at least my entire marriage. There's 13 seasons of King of the Hill. Do you know how much time I've wasted watching Hank, Parent, Bobby Hill? My goodness. Propane and propane accessories. It means nothing. Time and energy, so quickly, we waste it on things. We can't even pretend like they're godly. We could spend all our time here doing stuff and never actually love people. God says those things are like clanging gongs in his ears. Paul has some harsh words to say about those things they're not in love. 
I'm getting off track. As a church, we do the same thing. Blaise Pascal said, God made man in his own image, and man returned the favor. So what do we do? How do we not do this? How do we not make God in our own image? The gospel helps us. Jesus is the image that we look to. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the image. This is why God said, don't create any other image, because I have an image. You want to see it? Look at Jesus Christ. Over and over and over in Scripture, we're told, look at that. John 17, 3, Jesus says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You want to know the true God? We're going to be talking about Exodus 34, 6, and 7 for a while. We're going to talk about how God defines himself, but here's, here's the spoiler alert. Every week, it's going to come back to Jesus because Jesus said, this is eternal life. How do we know him if God's given us a constant posture or if we have, we've rebelled ourselves, we've separated from God? How do we do that? Well, Jesus says, repent, change your mind. Repent and be transformed by the renewing your mind, Paul says. This is why we say every week, prayer, church, and scripture. Right now, you're sitting, okay, what do I do, David? A lot of information. Thanks for drawing pictures. What do I do? Measure your life with prayer, church, and scripture. Do you talk to God? When's the last time you talked to God about your broken marriage? When's the last time you talked to God about the things that make you angry? When's the last time you talked about God things that you feel happy about? We talk to God because he wants a personal relationship with us. What's your relationship like with Scripture? Are you getting in Scripture to know who God is, who God says He is? Do these Scriptures that we talk about mean anything to you? Or is your only understanding of Scripture what I happen to say each Sunday? You're just rolling the dice. Whatever we learn at church that Sunday, that's it. That's all I read Scripture. God's given you a book. He's trying to talk to you. Read His Word. How do you know the God you're praying to? This is why we read Scripture. And then thirdly, we have the church. Why do we have the church? When we read this story, church... We think it's so stupid that they would make a golden calf. Like, is anyone here just like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Of course, yeah, you guys should have done that. No! We read it, we read those six verses and we think, you stupid people! Did you just hear what God said? Come on, it's like four chapters back, you dummies! Why do we get to do that? Because we have an outside perspective. This is why you need the church. How many times have you looked in someone's life and you said, you stupid person! Like, if you would just do this, life would be so much. Have you ever parented some? Gosh, come on. Like, you look at someone and say, if you would only, come on, can you see it from my angle? Can you? This is why you need the church. If you're not committed to a local body, if you're not committed to a church, a gospel, teaching, preaching church, I hope this is a time that convicts you that you need the church. Because you think it's stupid that people would make a golden calf. But there are things in your life that are stupid, that are wrong. And you don't know what you don't know. We need the church. Thank God that we can gather here, that we can talk to each other and say, hey, I'm looking at it this way. Well, hey, have you looked at it this way? Ah, praise God. Let's work together because we're one body, one faith, one baptism. I'm going to have the band come forward. We're going to keep talking about this for several weeks. Who is God? Blaise Pascal has another quote we're going to read. He's a Christian philosopher. He says, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Every single one of us was created in the image of God, and we've broken that with our rebellion. Whatever it is in your life, whatever it is, the things you try to hide, you don't want anyone to know about, those things have separated us from God. And you have a God-shaped vacuum in your life, and you know it. Whether you're sitting here, whether you're watching at home, you know there's something missing. And the only thing that fills that void is Jesus Christ.
That's why Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so maybe you're here, you're watching at home, you've never given your life to Jesus. This is your time. During response, I'd encourage you to come down here. Come pray. Let's talk to Jesus. Let's let him fill that God-shaped void in your life, that rebellion that separated you from God, because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the one that is mediating. He took on your sin. He died so that you could have a right relationship with God. Maybe you've already known that, and you've gotten away from God, and you're saying, man, I've got all these idols in my life. I've got these things, this, this alcohol I can't get away from, this, this, this struggle, these things that consume my mind. I'm constantly angry. I'm constantly nitpicking. I'm constantly gossiping. I can't stand these parts of my life. They're consuming me. Maybe this is your time to open your hands and say, man, I need to get away from these things. It's your time to come and know Jesus. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you and they know the one that you've sent. Do you know Jesus? Take this time as we worship to ask yourself, do you know God? Do you know Jesus? Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you need to join a church. Say, I need people to speak in my life and I need to grow with God's body. We're going to take time and do this. And this is eternal life, that they know God, they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Let's pray, and then we'll worship together. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love for us. God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would separate our hearts and minds from these idols, these images, these things that we put up that separate us from you these things that we've crafted to define you in ways that make us feel more comfortable. Lord, I pray that you would break through in your spirit and show us who you are, that we would see your glory, that we would understand how you define yourself through Jesus Christ. And I pray for those of us who have that God-shaped vacuum in our heart, that we would come to you and fill those with Jesus. Thank you that you promise that you're with us always. Thank you that you bring us together through your church. God, we pray that we would see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guide us now as we respond to you, as we worship you.